invite you to turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. We'll be primarily looking at the first 12 verses as we consider some core truths of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in history. It is absolutely central to God's redemptive plan. It is absolutely crucial to the gospel message. It is so essential to Christianity that if it were to be if it were proven to be a hoax, if it were shown to be a fraud, an elaborate ruse, Christianity would fall apart. Well, how, how so? Consider that the resurrection affirms the crosswork of Jesus Christ. Jesus rising from the dead affirms that Jesus did in fact bear the sins of his people and that for them, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the demands of God's righteous wrath is satisfied. They are completely, fully forgiven. But if the resurrection is a sham, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless and that you are still in your sins. That was the, 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 the bulk of that text was Pastor Carl's message last year. If you'd like to study up on that, I recommend you finding it in the church archives. It was a great message. The resurrection was important for the cross work of Christ. It, was also, it is also important and affirms the hope of the gospel, which isn't that you might have a happy life now, but rather the assurance of life forever with God and with God's people in a new heaven and in a new earth that are remade with no sin, no death, no disease, no decay, no suffering. It involves a whole creation being recreated by the same power which God exercised to raise Christ from the dead. And in fact, Scripture says that his resurrection serves as the first fruits. It serves as the prototype for our resurrection and for the resurrection of the entire creation. That's also in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8. The resurrection of Jesus Christ affirms the trustworthiness, the reliability of Scripture, because the Old Testament repeatedly said Christ would rise from the dead. You you should have Luke 24 open. Uh, Look down at verse uh, 25. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? And to enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things to them, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Oh, what a sermon I wish I could have sat in on. 
Peter in 1 Peter 1.11 said that the prophets, as they were writing the Old Testament scriptures, that the spirit of Christ within them that was inspiring their writings was causing them to inquire and to peer over into their, their very prophecies as the spirit was leading them to predict the sufferings of Christ, 1 Peter 1.11. 1 Corinthians 5.13, where Paul provides the, the, the gospel message in, in a nutshell. He says that Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried and was raised according to the scriptures. And if you're, if you're taking notes for your own study, I recommend you begin in Acts 2, which quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 as well as Acts 13.30, which quotes Isaiah 55. Time doesn't permit me to, to, to dig into those, but for your own study, consult those passages. We looked at Psalm 22 Friday evening at our Good Friday service, and I stopped when the suffering part concluded. I stopped when just before we got to the glory part of the psalm. I suggest you look at the last stanza of psalm 22 look at the concluding stanza of isaiah 53 and that's that's just the beginning the old testament repeatedly said christ would suffer and die and rise the resurrection also affirms the deity of Christ because Christ himself repeatedly said, in addition to the Old Testament, Christ said he would rise from the dead. And if he didn't, he is a liar. And scripture says God cannot lie. Furthermore, Jesus said in John 10:18, concerning his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. If Christ could not raise himself as he said he would, then he isn't God. Hebrews 4.17 says that we have a faithful, merciful high priest who lives to make intercession for us. Ephesians 4.10.11 says that because Christ ascended, because he rose that he has given to the church as gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints and the building up of the body. All those, those gifts and the function they serve are because Christ rose. John sixteen seventeen, Jesus told his disciples that he could not send the Holy Spirit unless he returned to the Father. He couldn't return to the Father unless he rose from the dead. Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, which is a euphemism for death. The gates of Hades, death will not prevail against the church. How could God? Christ protect the church from death if he could not protect himself from death. Acts 17:31 Paul writes Paul said to the Athenians that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed and he has furnished proof he has provided evidence of that fact 
by the fact that he rose Christ from the dead. So much either stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is so important that each gospel account, all four gospels record the resurrection very carefully. And each gospel does have some differences, yes. Each one is recording it from its own unique perspective. Each one has an emphasis, some unique details, but they each build a cohesive and a consistent, concrete account for the resurrection by providing five core truths, five important truths of the resurrection. And I would like to bring those before you for your consideration today. The first is that Jesus Christ really did die. He was dead. Secondly, on the third day, the tomb was empty. And third, the angels appeared to explain the empty tomb. Fourth, the women were the first eyewitnesses of this. And fifth is that the disciples did not believe the resurrection. So Jesus was dead, the tomb was empty, the angels explained, the women witnessed, and the disciples had disbelief. Let's read the text. Luke writes, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned to the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, we see first that Jesus was truly dead, and we're doing just a a smidge of backtracking before our text this morning, but there were multiple witnesses who could verify the deadness of Jesus on Friday. If you look just a few verses earlier in Luke 23, 47, the centurion, when he saw Jesus breathe his last, said, surely he was an innocent man past tense. The centurion who saw him breathe his last knew Jesus was dead. 
In John 19.34, the soldiers who pierced his sides knew he was dead. They didn't break his knees as was a custom to speed up the death. If someone was taking a little bit longer to die, they'd come and break his knees so that he couldn't support himself. He would asphyxiate and die much quicker. And they saw there was no need for them to do that. And just to make sure, they pierced his side and, and unmingled water and blood flew out, uh, poured out. They knew he was dead. John 19.34 also says that John, the apostle, witnessed these things. Luke 23:48 says that the mocking crowds seeing these things seeing what that he breathed his last seeing these things they beat their breasts and began to go home they knew the crowds knew he was dead in verse 52 Joseph of Arimathea and with Nicodemus as John 19 points out took his body they asked Pilate, and they had permission to take his body, wrap it with spices, and bury him. They knew he was dead. And then in Matthew 27, 62 to 64, the priests and the Pharisees who were among the crowds mocking him said to Pilate, when he was still alive, he said such and such. They knew he was dead. And so the God-man died now just, you, 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 you have you have to stop for just a moment and be blown away by that the god man died god wrapped in human flesh leo the great one of the one of the later church early church fathers said that christ was majesty that took upon itself humility strength which took upon itself Humility, eternity, which took upon itself mortality to pay the debt into which we had fallen. A nature, speaking of his deity, a nature which cannot be harmed was united to a nature which could suffer. God united himself to a nature which could suffer and die. And now, Friday evening, he was dead. So that is the first fact shared by all four Gospels. Jesus Christ, the God-man, was dead. And then we see over in chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. This is early Sunday morning. Jesus has risen from the dead, just as he said he would on the third day. Day. The Jews had no names for the days of the week. They didn't call it Sunday. But we know this was Sunday because Saturday, the seventh day, was the Sabbath. And he had to be killed and taken down and buried before the Sabbath began. And so he was buried on the fifth day of the week, He's in, which is the, the Jews also counted partial days if they're counting, if they're measuring a length of time, they counted partial days as full days. So he's in the tomb part of the fifth day. It counts as one day. He's in the tomb all day on the sixth day. That's a second day. And then he rises early on the first day of the next week, which is the third day being 
dead. Just as he said he would. Just as he said he would. And so he rose from the dead on Sunday, which is why the church meets and assembles for worship and for Christian fellowship on Sunday. The apostles began this tradition in Acts, and every time the church met in Acts and in the epistles, it's always on the first day of the week. And in Revelation 1.10, it's called the Lord's Day, because it really is the Lord's Day. It's about him. So notice at verse 1. Notice in verse 1 that the women came expecting to find a dead body. How do we know that? They came with the spices that they had prepared to embalm him. As a, as a gesture of their affection and love for him, they brought spices that they had carefully, and these were expensive spices, they had purchased and they had prepared, and they, as one final gesture of love and anticipating him to be dead still, they come to anoint his body. Mark 16.3 addresses the fact that they were wondering, how, what are they going to do about the stone? We don't know if they, if they came to any conclusion by the time they got there. Luke doesn't bring that up. But verse 2, they arrive and they find, in verse 2, that the stone has been rolled away. And verse 3, what do they see? That what's, what's in the tomb? Emptiness. Certainly not the body of the Lord Jesus. Matthew tells us that there were soldiers posted at the tomb, but because of an, a great earthquake when the angels appeared to roll away the stone and because of the presence of the angels, they were terrified. They became like dead men. They fainted. And at one point, when they came to, they ran away. And Matthew explains that they ran off to the Jews to explain what had happened. And they, the Jews paid them off and came up with a cover story. Remember what that cover story was? The disciples must have come and stolen his body. Now, we're going to come back to that a little later. But by now, by it's dawn, it's early morning, and the tomb that on Friday and Saturday, and at least for a part of Sunday, contained, it was very much occupied with a very much dead body, is now very much empty. The soldiers knew it, the Jews knew it, and... For, mo- for most important sake, the women knew it. Next we see the angelic explanation in verses 4 through 7. Verses 4 through 7. And we, there we see the women. They're, they're at the doorway. They're inside the tomb. They're looking in. They're completely perplexed. They are completely perplexed. They are confused. What happened to the Lord's body? Where did it go? How, how, how could this have happened? Did, did, did grave robbers take him? Did, was, he, was there a mistake made? Has he been moved and have we not been notified? What, what happened? Where is he? And they're perplexed and their perplexion quickly turns into sheer abject terror. Because who shows up? The angels. Luke calls them men, but notice the women's response is the way people typically respond when encountered by an angelic host. Absolute terror, falling face 
face uh, flat on the ground, falling down in reverence. We saw even John did that at the end of Revelation the other week. They respond the way people normally respond when they're personally encountered by an angel. Luke also says that they had dazzling clothes. And this isn't razzle-dazzle like fashion dazzling. This is the same word dazzling is used in Luke 17:24 to describe the gleam or the flash of a lightning bolt. It is super ultra white. Tide cannot get clothes that white. And more helpfully, Matthew and John both identify the men the men as angels. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, unanimously they are by unanimous testimony they are Angels, And so the angels, what do they do? They explain the mystery of the empty tomb. If you look at the, the end of the second half of verse 5, they ask, they ask this, this had to have been a rhetorical question. They ask, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? I mean, this, this is, this is a, a, a tomb. This is where dead people are. And he's, he's very much alive. What, why are you looking for one who is alive among, in a place where you would typically expect to find dead people? It, help me understand this, ladies. And they explain what happened to change Jesus from being very dead to very much alive. What do they say? He has risen. He has Risen, and then they provide a little a, a gentle rebuke. They say he is not here; he is risen. Remember, verse six, how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee. Remember how he spoke to them, and, and we know from the gospel accounts. Jesus told his disciples and and the people, including the women who accompanied them, he told them repeatedly what was going to happen. Their their bewilderment, their wonderment, their shock over the death of Jesus and that he would be raised, that would be excusable if Jesus hadn't told, if Jesus had forgotten to leave that out. You know, oops, forgot to mention the whole dying and resurrecting thing. If Jesus hadn't said anything, their lack of their, their their bewilderment could be explainable. It would be justified. Or if if he had said it, you know, he, Jesus spoke in parables. You know, he he said some hard truths obscurely that were that was difficult for some people to grasp. If if he had said it like that, you know, or one time in that one far off place, he said it once, their bewilderment would. Bewilderment would be excusable and justified, but we know from the Gospels Jesus told them repeatedly. And they should have known. So the angels remind the women of his words. What were his words? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Verse 7. He must be delivered. He must be crucified. And the third day he must rise again. 
That's how the angels explained the empty tomb. Again, unanimous truth found in all four Gospels. We see then the witness of these women in verses 8 through 10. The witness of the women. And really, the way they respond to the angels' gentle rebuke and to their reminder of what Jesus told them is quite commendable. Their response is quite commendable. What is their response? Look at verse 8. Oh, yeah. He did say that. You're right, angels. Luke tells us, and they remembered his words. They remembered his words. They recalled all that teaching that was so hard for the disciples during those three years. They recalled it in an instant. They were brought to a point of belief, and their belief brought them to a point of immediate responsive action. Matthew fills in a little bit of a, of a gap here, and he says that they, that they went and reported with, with fear and with great joy. Luke just goes straight to their response. It says that they returned from the tomb and they reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Who did they report the angel's explanation to? To the eleven. That's the the disciples. The the core group of men who had been closely, they, they had been chosen and called that called to follow the Lord Jesus they had been carefully taught and instructed and ministered to and prayed over for the last 3 years and there were 12 but if you remember one departed so here they're called the 11 and then Luke also says and all the rest and Luke says if you look if you look at the at the second half of verse 10 and the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles that the way that that tense comes out this isn't a one time thing they are explaining and telling the story and explaining what happened again and again and again and again they're telling they're giving the account multiple times they are excited they are overjoyed. They can't explain it enough. Why were they so excited? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, they are going to get to see their Lord again. And they want to share their joy with the disciples. And so they go tell the disciples, He has risen. And this is a commendation to the women who were at that time and in that culture, often seen as somewhere between a second-class citizen and a slave. Women were typically not viewed as full citizens, fully deserving of society, but they weren't quite slaves. So it's a commendation to them, Luke points out. He points out their faith, how they quickly believed. He points out their courage, how they quickly respond in in reporting the news 
to the disciples. They don't care if they're gonna, how they're going to be perceived. They don't care if they come across as mad or crazy. They have to share the truth. They know the truth. They have to share it. So Luke, Luke writes positively of their faith, of their courage, and also of their love and their devotion to the Lord Jesus. Where do we get that from? In Luke 23, 49, these women witnessed his death. When all the disciples, save John, deserted the Lord hanging on the cross, these women were there. Luke 23:49. they were there witnessing his suffering and they saw him die. And then down in 23:55, they were there when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea buried him. They saw him, they, they couldn't leave their Lord yet and they saw him all the way to his resting place. And now... They, they are witnesses. These very same women are witnesses of the empty tomb. That is love and loyalty and devotion and dedication to their Lord. And Luke writes, Luke points this out as a point of commendation for them. John, the same thing couldn't be said for John. He witnessed his death, yes. He witnessed the empty tomb, yes, but he did not. He was not there when Jesus was being buried. All the disciples were sulking. Nicodemus and Joseph, who took the time and paid the expenses to embalm him and to bury him, did not see him die. Only the women witnessed all three events. All three events, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3, he lists these three things as the the microcosm of the gospel, as, as the gospel in a nutshell, where he says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. These women saw that. That he was buried. These women saw that too. And that he was raised according to the scripture. They now see the empty tomb. And so their testimony, when they go and they deliver it to the disciples, it is not a testimony, it is not a witness that is to be casually dismissed. It is to be received and believed. Why do I say that? Because Deuteronomy 19.15 says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. A matter shall be believed. So Luke writes that these women witnessed these things. Well, Luke, come on, you, you just say these women. I mean, how are we supposed to know who these women are? How do we, how, whose door do we go knock on to corroborate this account which you're writing, Luke? Help us out a little bit. Oh, well, he does. Look at verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna... And Mary, the mother of James. Well, look at that. Three witnesses. Names of people who you could go and corroborate and confirm and verify that the gospel story is true. 
And Luke does this so that the skeptic, upon hearing the gospel, that Jesus, that the God-man died for your sins and was buried and rose, could ask these women specifically, you saw him die? Yes. You, and you saw him buried? Yes. And you, you saw him rise? Well, we saw that the guarded and sealed tomb is empty, and the angels explained us why. So, yes, we saw it. The tomb was empty, and everybody knew it. And now they knew why. Why is it empty? He has risen. And now these women composed a lawful body of testimony who witnessed his death and his burial and the empty tomb. And they could, they could corroborate, they could verify the gospel message as to why the tomb is empty. And anybody who responded to this amount of evidence has no excuse. They don't have a leg to stand on. And so we have to ask ourselves, after all this, who would, who would not believe this? Who would still harbor unbelief in their hearts? Well, the disciples are more than willing to step up to the plate and deliver for us. We see in verses 11 to 12 the disbelief of the disciples. And this is sad. The disciples dismiss the women's testimony. Look at verse 11. Their testimony appeared to them as what? Nonsense. Fairy tales, myths, legend, old wives' tales. And they would not believe. It doesn't matter that the women could corroborate their story. It doesn't matter that they could confirm each other's account. You realize that's the first thing that makes or breaks an eyewitness's reliability. Cohesion, consistency, whether or not this witness's account verifies and falls in line with what this witness says or Do they confirm one another or do they contradict? That's the first thing that either says this story is reliable and it's true. And if they contradict the first thing that will say, oh, they're just making it up. And when a witness proves themselves to be unreliable, that's the first thing that justifies the skeptic's unbelief so never mind that their testimony was mutual never mind that they were all in accord and that they agreed and that their testimony and account provided cohesion and consistency and per deuteronomy their the matter was supposed to be confirmed never mind all that the disciples have been unbelieving before The disciples have been spiritually dull and hard of hearing before, and that was in his presence. Why should they be any different in his absence? So we see in verse 12, Peter, impetuous Peter, impulsive Peter, 
something is moving in him and he gets up and he has to go see the tomb for himself. So he got up and he ran to the tomb and he, verse 12 says, he's stooping down. That, 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 that is a word which says he, he's not just casual, he's in the tomb. Uh, another gospel account says, that, I think John says he actually goes, he enters the tomb. He is getting a good look, a real good look at that empty tomb. Just in case the body is, I don't know, behind a small rock or something. It, it, when you're looking for something it, like, and you really want to find it, how many times do you look in the exact same spot just, just in case, was I, no, I'm not, a ma- no, it, no, it really is gone. My wife knows how I look for stuff. The body is gone. It's gone. It's real, not, not, not just kind of gone. It's gone. And what does he find instead of a body? He finds the wrappings that were used to bind and to seal the body of Jesus. So Peter has heard the lady's account. He's... And now he's seen the empty tomb himself. He has seen it with his own eyes. Question, does Peter have faith now? Does he believe now? Is the evidence enough now? No. After all that, still no. We see, as Luke finishes verse 12, he went away to his home. What word is that? Marveling. We've, we've looked at this word before in First Peter. Maybe that word really meant a lot to him, which is why he uses it later on in his epistle. He marveled at the empty tomb. He marveled that the body is gone, but the wrappings are still there. And we're, we'll look at why why that's important in a, in a minute. But he's marveling. This is marveling is not a momentary surprise. You don't recover from marveling in a few seconds. Marveling is is utter astonishment. It is being shocked and shaken to your core. When you marvel at something, it's because there's something that you can't get, you can't figure it out, you can't get your mind wrapped around it, and it keeps you up at night. And I don't know what it is about this. Is it, is it the how it happened? Is it the why it happened? For whatever reason, Peter can't grasp the resurrection. He is struggling with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He can't grasp it. And the disciples as a whole don't get it until Jesus has to appear before them bodily down in verse 36 in the upper room. And if you remember doubting Thomas, uh, he's absent the first time. He even, even with the other ten, saying, no, he really is, and he refused to believe until he saw so as well. Just as a side note, 
verse 34 and 1 Corinthians 15:5 affirm that Christ appears to Peter at some point. We know it's after verse 12 and before verse 34, but none of the Gospels document it, so we don't know when it is. But as a whole, Peter often acts as the representative of, of the whole band. The disciples as a whole, they don't get it. And so we, at, we have to ask this question, why do the scriptures in each gospel, why do they point out in detail that the Lord's own disciples do not believe that he rose from the dead? They each, each gospel documents the women witnessed and the women believed and then that the men did not believe. The New Testament points out the embarrassing disbelief and the dullness of heart of the disciples. Why? I mean, these are the men that Jesus himself chose and called. This is what Carl's been preaching about for the last several weeks. These are the men that walked with Jesus. They heard him. They were taught by him. They were prayed over by him. They were ministered to by him and shepherded by him personally. For three years, they had the inside scoop. And he told them. Some of you have children and have to tell them some things multiple times. So you, you, you get sometimes we have dullness. of, But Jesus told them repeatedly, I'm going to die. And I'm going to be buried and I'm going to rise. So just remember that. It happens exactly as you said. Oh, all's lost. I, he told them, why do they not believe? And why does the scripture go through painful effort to point this out? I think it's because their unbelief offers further evidence for the resurrection. Their unbelief provides further evidence for the resurrection. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, remember, go, go back to what Matthew says. What was the cover story that the Jews concocted to explain that the tomb is now empty. Remember, the Jews knew them that the, 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 the tomb is empty, and it's only a matter of time until, until rumor gets out and the, the news spreads, the tomb's empty. You know that tomb that was guarded by the power and might of Rome? You know, it had, had the big old rock placed in front of it, that so, so heavy that no one could move it? it had soldiers out front? yeah. He's gone. It's empty. Well, and, and, and they explain that by saying, well, his disciples came, came and took his body. But when the Gospels each point out time and again in painful detail that these disciples, these are not spiritual masterminds. These are not spiritually, spiritually smart men. They couldn't have stolen 
the body. And we have multiple accounts that the, Bible, that the disciples couldn't have stolen the body and, and merely told people that Jesus rose from the dead because it's documented time and time and time again that they themselves repeatedly did not believe that he rose from the dead. Why would they perpetuate a story? Why would they, why would they perpetuate this ruse and sell this story and expect other people to believe it when they themselves, it's documented, they did not believe it. They wouldn't believe it, and so they wouldn't have stolen the body. And so could someone else have stolen the body? Could, could Pilate or some of the Roman authorities stolen the, Pilate, uh, stolen the body? No, because... T- Pilate's relations with the Jews was already pretty tense. And if if Pilate did something as stupid as that, that's just striking the beehive. Pilate was was on a pretty short leash as it was. And the Jews, why, why would the Jews have done anything but keep the body right where it was? Because if... If anything did happen to the body, then you're just asking for rumors of a resurrection to spread. Even they knew he said I would, that he would rise. Grave robbers wouldn't have gone through the effort of, of carefully unwrapping the body and leaving the linen wrappings where it was. If they had somehow gotten past the guards, past the big rock that nobody could move, they would have merely taken some of the aloes or the myrrh or anything of, of worth inside. They're not going to touch a corpse. Jews did not put jewelry on corpses. Corpses were unclean. So Pilate and Rome wouldn't have touched the body. Jews would not have, the Jews would not have touched the body. Robbers would not have touched the body. Well, maybe someone, maybe a skeptic took the body. Well, if a skeptic did take the body, why not produce it several weeks later when the apostles are proclaiming that Jesus has rose? If, if they came up with the body at that point, that would dispel the gospel message pretty quickly, but they didn't. Why? Because nobody had the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus was in full possession of his body at that point. Well, what, what if the ladies and, and what if Peter had stumbled upon upon the wrong tomb and they you know they saw a tomb that someone was about to put somebody in it and they see it's empty and they make this big mistake and 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 then perpetuate the story of the resurrection when all along they just had the wrong tomb well if that was the case then why didn't the Jews or Rome who clearly knew which tomb Jesus was in why didn't they open it up produce the body because the body wasn't there, because it was the right tomb all along. And it was empty because Jesus really did rise. The ladies had the right tomb. After all, they they knew exactly where to go. They had seen him buried. And so only the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, as it is explained in the Gospels, logically and rationally explains the empty tomb. The New Testament repeatedly affirms that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to deny the resurrection is to deny the historical facts, is to deny the New Testament, the gospel accounts, the New Testament, the scripture as a whole. It is to deny the word of God himself. Much would fall apart if the resurrection was shown to be false. But, beloved, it's true. The resurrection is true, and because it is true, Jesus indeed is Lord. And if that is true, God has indeed fixed a day to judge the world in righteousness. What does that mean? Judging the world in righteousness. That means that God is going to judge the world with balanced scales. He is going to judge rightly. There will be true justice. Every crime, every evil deed, every sin will be held accountable. Paul says in Acts 17 that the resurrection proves, God proves that he has done this and that he has appointed Jesus to be that judge because of the resurrection. The resurrection proves Jesus will be the world's judge, but the resurrection also proves that Jesus is the advocate and the defender of all who come to him in faith and belief and worship. Well, how, how does he do that? How does he become my advocate? How does he become my defender? By coming into the world, wrapping himself in human flesh, dying for our sins, which the scripture says he would do, being buried and dying and rising as the scriptures says he would do. So I exhort you and plead that if you do not yet belong to him, come to him in belief and faith and worship and see him as the God-man, as the lamb who was slain and now has risen again. Amen? Lord Jesus, what a glorious day. What a glorious day because of this day, because of your rising from the dead, you affirm so many things. You affirm that you will one day judge the world in righteousness, which is what we have been which is what we have seen in Revelation. But it also, Lord, affirms to us that you, just as you had the, the, the power and the prerogative to raise yourself, you will likewise raise all those who believe in you. You promised that whoever believes in you, you would raise up in the last day. You promised that. And because of the resurrection, we can believe that promise. Lord, show yourself 
to be in, in our hearts and our minds. Show yourself to be all that the Scripture says you are. What a glorious day indeed. Thank you for rising from the dead.